Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Ido Aharoni is the Consul General of the United Nations in New York. He covers a little beyond the tri-state area. But Ido's real training is in the world of marketing and public relations. He's a brilliant guy. And because of his command of the English language and this niche that he has, he's been working very hard on addressing issue, issues that help Israel in the world of marketing and public relations. One thing that he shared that was of note was that as a whole, our society doesn't live in the world of broadcast anymore. The, world, the word broadcast is exactly what it means, a broadcast. There'd be one central address that would share information or data with you, and that one central address would give that information to the masses. So when Walter Cronkite got on TV at 6.30 at night, 7 o'clock, whenever the time was, and he shared what happened in the world with you, one person shared that broadcast with literally millions of people, and that's where they got their news. But today, we live in a very different world. It's not a world of broadcast. We live in a world of narrowcast. And that's actually what it's being called in the media world, narrowcast. By narrowcast, what's meant by that is that most people are dialing in and tuning in to all of the particulars, the pieces of news that they want. So if they want something liberal or they want something conservative, they want something hardline or they want something that's loose, they know exactly where to subscribe because at our fingertips sits literally hundreds if not thousands of news channels that gives us exactly the kind of news we want. It's narrow. And when we get in our cars and we're not on news channels anymore, we dial in to one of 350 radio channels that give us exactly what we want. And when we sit on our lazy boys and we put on the remote control, we can dial to any channel we want to give us the news we want. And for those of you who might contend with this thinking, which isn't mine, I just want to jog your attention and your thought to one, one concept. That on any election night, who tunes into CNN and who tunes into Fox? That's a result of a narrowcast versus a broadcast. Because a generation, if not two generations ago, we didn't have 12, 15, 25, 30 news channels all covering the elections. We had one, maybe the three major networks, but they were all on similar pages, just being the first to break these newses. When I hear about this idea of narrowcast, I'm jogged back to a book I read a little over a decade ago by Robert Putnam, who's a sociologist at Harvard. And the book is called Bowling Alone. I talked about it about a decade ago on the high holidays. The core of the book explains that more people are bowling today than ever before. But there's one thing missing from bowling that used to exist that no longer exists, and that's bowling leagues. So bowling alleys are getting more traffic than ever, but people don't bowl in leagues anymore. They bowl pickup games by themselves, a few friends going out. And it's fascinating phenomenon. Putnam goes on to explain that more people are exercising than ever before, but the most celebrated form of exercise today is walking, which most people do alone, and many do on a treadmill. 
in a solitary form dialed into their own narrow cast of what they want to listen to and what they want to hear. To me, these things prove the hypothesis that Putnam put forth a little over a decade ago as true, that we are seeing the beginning of the erosion of community. We see the beginning of a sense of a homo- of losing a sense of a, a homogeneous group, homogeneous group, that all comes together in one area, but inherently in doing so, we have to submit to things we don't want to submit to. Meaning, if you notice in the Jewish world, more and more people find their own minyanim that are right for them. Perhaps it's got starts with 20 people or 60 people or 100 people, and it's very narrow what this minion looks like and what it's about. It meets their needs. Perhaps it's very traditional but egalitarian, or perhaps it's very traditional and non-egalitarian, but women can have particular roles, or whatever it might be. But the idea of the large synagogue as we used to know it is fading. And I posit the reason that it's fading is because most of us are so, and excuse the phrase, self-indulgent to have our own needs satisfied that we have almost either a visceral reaction or even a reflex reaction to being part of something where we inherently submit. Submit means that when you're part of a group and you stand by that group, you give in to things that group that you might not necessarily agree to, but you know it's in the greater whole, the greater good, the greater interest of the group. And that's what being a community is a part of. But in a world, if you excuse the homily of iPads and iPhones and iMacs, it becomes significantly harder to change the I to the we. Because there are more iPad sellings than we's that are selling. I think this change has been demonstrated in a few different arenas in our world. And I want to share one that has been stirring in me all week that is worthy of discussing and bringing attention to that has me quite scared for the future of the Jewish world. I was honored to be chosen to be a mentor for a group of young rabbis who are still in rabbinical school at APAC called the LaFell Fellowship. This group, about 40 of them, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox, they are all learning under the auspices of APAC how to be supportive of Israel and their congregations when they soon exit and become rabbis and communities. So I had the good fortune of being asked to facilitate and lead a conversation with some of these rabbis, about 40 of them, at Apex Policy Conference on Sunday night. I thought I was going to field questions like, how do you pick which speaker you're going to bring in? And who handles most of the legwork? And how do you know how many speakers to bring in to balance it out so that it, your synagogue isn't only Israel-centric, but you're bringing in others from your denomination and programs? And that's how I had armed myself for that conversation. And bear in mind, these 40 rabbis who were very impressive individually These are the creme de la creme of their respective schools. These are smart people and brave people and courageous people, and they weren't just chosen haphazardly. They were all hand-selected to be part of this two-year fellowship. 
and I was blindsided by the kind of questions that I received and the issues that were really at hand. Because at their core, what scared them and what bothered them is that they are all, all afraid to speak about Israel from the bima. Now, they don't have bimas yet, but they will soon, some in a few months, some in a few years. And they are petrified to talk about Israel. And when I pushed them on this, because it was as foreign to me as telling me that their favorite food was a pork chop, they said two things. They said, the issue of Israel is so charged and loaded, we are so afraid of alienating some significant demographic in our synagogue, especially when there's a demographic of 30-year-olds and 80-year-olds that are davening together. And furthermore, they said, that we worry that we will be measured by the amount of people who come in the doors, not who leave. And we're afraid talking about Israel will encourage more people to leave than come in. And since we'll be measured by how well we maintain and grow membership, we don't want to do anything that might stir the pot. Now, I appreciated their candor, and I think if it were one or two students, I would have pulled them aside, but this was clearly the majority, and I think they represented their schools as well. And they were fueled by a recent happening that just occurred in Manhattan at the B'nai Jeshurun Synagogue, where a group of the rabbis, not all of them, but some of them, signed their name to a letter that was riddled with some level of controversy vis-a-vis -vis its support for Israel. And a significant portion of members of that synagogue exited the synagogue. They left, they wrote letters of resignation, and this was the reason why they were leaving, because of the rabbi's particular stance on Israel. What salted the wound for the congregation is that some of these members had been longtime members, were very philanthropic, and were about to commit in a significant way to the synagogue's capital campaign. So its punch was felt on two sides. And no rabbi wants to see 40 or 50 families leave its congregation at any time, regardless of its size. That's a scary thing in the business that we're in. And putting on the scales two notions. One notion is the idea of freedom of speech and believing in what we believe in. And the second notion is realizing that at a synagogue, well, even when there are multiple rabbis, that a rabbi or a cantor or a leader or even a synagogue lay leadership can share a particular thought or a passion or a direction and you being part of the congregation can say, that's not for me. I don't agree. I don't want to be part of that. But I'm still here. Because in a world today where we have 50 other outlets in which to turn, I notice people are much quicker to use the exit sign than to hunker down and say, there are things that happen here that I don't agree with, or I don't like, that aren't part of what I fully subscribe to. But I'm staying because this is where my home is, where my tradition is, the overall good is, where I've been for a while, because I believe in the overall pursuit of the clergy, whatever it might be. That today people are quicker to exit because, and I posit it's because, they feel less tied to the notion of community and less tied overall to the enterprise that they're a part of. Because as a community overall, we are much more narrow in our caste than broad. We want our individual needs met versus realizing the minute we walk in the door, 
Some of our individual needs will not be met, and some of our individual needs will be met through the meeting of other needs that aren't ours. That is a hard thing to swallow in a world where all of our individual needs can be met instantly. But in seeing someone else satisfied in a way that has no satisfaction whatsoever for us, are we able to realize that that's the beauty of community? That that's the blessing that lives within it? There was more controversy just like this, sadly, this week. PJ Library, sponsored by the Grinspoon Foundation, does amazing work sending kids books on Jewish topics throughout the world. But this month, it sent a book about Purim that had, as their model family, two fathers and a child. Some were furious with the Grinspoon Foundation, and in particular, PJ Library, for choosing this book that doesn't represent their family values as what PJ Library would disseminate to the community, the greater whole, to all of those who are subscribed. And many are threatening to leave their support of the PJ Library because of a book that was disseminated that doesn't represent their values. Now, one could argue there were 36 books over the last three years that did meet their values. But if one book doesn't meet your values and you're ready to walk out already, you're ready to leave because of one that you don't agree with, my question is, are you really part of a community at that point? Are you really part of something that's bigger than you? The Mishkan that we learn comes into effect in this parsha, Parshat Vayikra, was the epitome of the Jewish people coming together for something bigger than one. It was part of a greater whole. And inherently in that, there are things in a greater whole that we loathe, that we don't enjoy, that are even at times perhaps abhorrent to us. And all of us have our own red lines. All of us have our lines where we cross, where we say no more. I can't take that anymore. I don't want to be part of that. Whether it's something the rabbi says, the cantor does, the president makes happen, a party leader demonstrates, we all have those lines in our respective communities. And that's the beauty of those lines. But if our lines exist on any and everything that doesn't satisfy us, and we can't realize its purpose in the greater good that isn't about us, then I argue that Putnam is right. And I don't think he wants to be right, and I don't want him to be right. Because him being right means we are beginning the demise of community, and we will live in individual worlds. We will interact with each other like molecules that float and bounce into each other's lives. But we won't be part of community anymore. The Mishkan and the Mizbeach is the paradigm that we should be following. It's 5,000 years old and it still works. It's one place for all of B'nai Israel. And there were people who committed all different types of transgressions and all different types of thanksgivings that they wanted to offer and they came to one address to give those sacrifices. One address. And maybe when they stood in the Mizbeach in line to bring their turtle dove or what ox or whatever offering they were doing, they meditated to the God that they believed in and the way that they believed in for their own tefillah ishit, their own personal prayer. But they were part of something bigger than them. And I doubt any of them got so mad at the Kohen 
that they stormed out and left and said, what's happening here? They were part of something bigger than them. And that's what community is about. I taught our women's group yesterday morning and I asked them a question that not one of them answered. And I begged them to think about the question and to respond to me privately. And I ask you this question rhetorically. And I'm sure all of you will have a quick joke or a kiddish with an answer. I want you to think about it seriously too. And the question's as follows. What could I do as your rabbi that would make you leave this synagogue instantly? And what could I do as your rabbi that could make you upset with me but realize that this is meeting the needs of a demographic in our community that's not yours and that there's value in that? There's a difference in those questions. There's a difference in those nuances. I'm asking you to define your red line and in its very definition of the red line to find out for yourself what can you absorb and accept is not for you but is for the other because that is the inherent lesson that happens when you sign your name to the membership application at this temple and when you walk in the door. Things happen here that we don't like. For all of us, myself included, I'm a member of the shul. My kids are raised in this shul. And it happens in every world. It happens in my rabbinic union. It happens in my fellowship at Hartman. It happens in the United Synagogue for Conservative Judaism. It happens at APAC. It happens at Schechter. It happens everywhere. There are things I don't like. But there are things that happen that I don't like that I realize cater to a need that isn't mine. And part of maturation and acceptance of community as a whole, if we're going to dig our heels in and reestablish what community is about, is that level of acceptance and that paradigm that existed in the Torah. Because we can't afford as a people for Putnam to be right. Because if Putnam's right, then we all lose. We might live in a world that is about the narrow cast and place the broadcast now. Not as many people tune in to Brian Williams as used to tune in to Dan Rather or Walter Cronkite. And that has nothing to do with Brian Williams. That has to do with the plethora of options out there that we can all tune our dials into now. But there are still a few places where us being a part of something bigger that we don't appreciate or enjoy can remind us of what it is to be part of something that's a greater whole, bigger than us. That was the Mishkan of old. That is our shul of today. And that is our responsibility. And in each of these organizations in which I mentioned, from Schechter to APAC to Temple Emmanuel, and the list goes on, there are people there for a host of different reasons. Republicans and Democrats. People committed to conservative Judaism versus people who want their kids to know Hebrew. People who come to the shul for a bar mitzvah versus people who come here to daven. But we have to be a shul to all of them. Because the minute we start choosing which one is authentic and which one isn't, which one belongs and which one doesn't, then we're not only eroding the nature of community, we're breaking it down for others to be a part of too. We're not only telling them that we can't stand what you're part of, we're giving them the license to say it back to us. And that's criminal. That's wrong. My blessing to all of us on the heels of what was for me an awakening moment 
at APAC with these young rabbis. And the heels of this latest finding, the PJ Library, that has been so problematic and divisive, is that we remember that organizations that are broad will have narrow streams within them. And our responsibility is to follow the model of the Mishkan, to realize we're part of something bigger than any one of us, than any one or any two, but a greater whole. And our role is to embrace those greater wholes and their passions and their needs, and not to discount any of them. For if we do, we have just taken a hammer and a chisel to the very foundation of community, and we can't afford that. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Page, please rise.